Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Dr. Holly Beers. Holly teaches New Testament and Greek at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. She's passionate about making the world and texts of the New Testament accessible and relevant in the lives of followers of Jesus today. Holly is the author of a novel titled A Week in the Life of a Greco-Roman Woman, and we are excited for this great conversation that we have in store for you today. Thanks for listening. Hi, Holly. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Alabaster Jar. Oh, I'm so honored. Thank you for having me. Yes, Holly and I have known each other for a while. We've served on academic uh, committees uh, with the Institute for Biblical Research together, and we uh, we just kind of geek out on uh, New Testament <laughs> stuff. And so, we sure do. <laughs> so it's really fun. And I had the privilege of looking at your manuscript before it was published, A Week in the Life of the Greco-Roman Woman, and I could not put it down. I mean, it it's a page-turner. It, oh, it's fabulous. And uh, it's something that academics don't typically do, or rarely do, I think, mm-hmm. and that is write a novel. But you go even beyond that. This is really good. I mean, this is, you know, for, for those listeners out there who uh, are looking for something that uh, to to bring them deeper into the biblical text, but also in a, in a a form that uh, that's a whole lot of fun. This book is for you. A week in the life of a Greco-Roman woman. So how? First of all, I, I'm I'm just I'm admiring your courage because like writing a novel like that has a plot and everything. Oh, thank you. Yes, it was a scary endeavor. I will say that it was the first novel I'd ever written. I've read probably thousands of novels in my life because that's my main hobby but I'd never written one. And it did take me a while to get into a groove, basically, and to feel comfortable. And I prayed a lot. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Oh, Holy Spirit. (laughs) Empower me to write this because I was nervous. Mm -hmm. Well, your education certainly comes through because this this novel is true to life. Uh, The positives and the beauty of first century life and also the negative. In fact, we wanted to tell the listeners uh, as we are getting into the, the story that there um, there's some things in here that um, uh, are, are real um, are realities of the ancient world, um, but also are, are very hard to hear. Did you want to talk at all about about just just letting our readers know mm-hmm, that these course. things are uh, are coming up? Yes. Well, there's some abuse within the marriage of my main character. She and her husband have what would be a very typical marriage, we think, uh, in the Mediterranean world at this time. But the husband is definitely not kind to his wife, and he's even physically abusive at points. So that's helpful to know going in. And then there are some pretty difficult portrayals of pregnancy and childbirth as well, which in the ancient world and in a lot of contexts today, I mean, that that's the most dangerous experience a woman might have in her entire lifetime is to have babies. Um, and in contexts like the United States, we sometimes don't realize that or have forgotten that. But um, for many women, even today, still in other parts of the world, it's it's scary. So there's some pretty graphic portrayals of that as well. Right. So as uh, we just want to let the our, our listeners know uh, about that, because we respect you and recognize that uh, each of us are, are 
on on a journey. We want to support everybody in that journey and certainly don't want to have uh, someone be taken unawares yes. Um, yes. Of, of these sorts of things. Yeah. Well, as we move into, uh, into your book, it starts with a woman in labor. Mm-hmm. It's not your main character. Her name is Anthea, right? Yes, it is. That's but she, she's with a friend of hers. She is. Tell us about that opening scene. Mm-hmm. So my main character is assisting at this labor and delivery of her friend. And honestly, I wrote that scene from my own experience to an extent, at least. I, my first baby, I've had three babies, and uh, my first baby was over 10 pounds. And they didn't know that he was that big, partly because I wasn't seeing a specialist. I was just having my you know, family practice doctor deliver him. And so he got stuck and basically didn't come out and they had to bring in a specialist last minute. And I probably would have died if I didn't have access to the kind of medical care that we have access to in the United States. So as in, in the book, as my main character is watching this friend of hers try to get this baby out and this baby won't come out and there's basically nothing that they can do to help. And she watches her friend die in childbirth. And I wanted to open my book with that scene as a way to really instill in modern day readers the realities of what life would have looked like for so many women in this part of the world at this time. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And and as you uh, go through, you kind of describe then Anthea's own um, own pregnancy mm-hmm. as as she goes through. Um, were there, there, I remember seeing it at one point, just her pausing and thinking, oh, I'm, I'm bleeding. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not feeling the baby move as yes. much. Yeah. Yes. She has many moments like that throughout the book, throughout her week. It, I actually wrote it as a literal week. So it's a day by day play. And some of the other books in this series, which because this is part of a series, they're not actually day by day in the same way that mine is. But she notices throughout the week when she can't feel her baby move and she is bleeding throughout the week, which, you know, for some people who aren't used to thinking about women's bodies in more detailed ways, again, that might be something that kind of takes people off guard. Uh, My male editor at IVP definitely made some comments about that. But I had said, if I'm going to write this, I want to write it from, to the best of my ability, from the true experience of a woman. Like every woman who has been through this kind of reality knows what it's like to, you know, wonder about her baby and if her baby's okay and to keep track of things like bleeding. So, yeah, she's paying attention, even though this is her second pregnancy. In the book, she already has a child. But, of course, having one successful labor and delivery does not mean that the next one will go well, and she's very aware of that. Yes, yes. So how does, how does she get to hear about the gospel? Well, in my imagination, yes. the Apostle Paul is super awesome and fun and kind of loud and has a really big laugh and... I mean, he can be direct, of course, and we see aspects of that in his letters, but I just imagine him as someone always that I would love to sit around a fire and talk with and eat with. So I wanted her to get a glimpse of the way that he interacts with people. So her first encounter with him, and it's not a direct encounter, but she's walking uh, through the streets of Ephesus with her husband, and she hears this man, Paul, she finds out who it is, who's kind of dialoguing or even debating with someone on outside the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and that location gets mentioned in the book of Acts. 
And there are so many people who are listening that they've kind of spilled out, even Paul and his his um, dialoguer, they've spilled out into the street so she gets to hear him interact. And she's so caught off guard by him and so intrigued by him because so many of the things that he's saying don't really seem to make sense from a much more kind of Greco-Roman perspective. It's much more, you know, Jewish, the things he's saying about this Jesus guy. So that puts him on her radar, but then she actually gets to interact with him personally later. Yes, yes. And is she initially put put off by the gospel message or is she intrigued? I would say I tried to write it in such a way that showed that she was intrigued, but also, I mean, intrigued, confused, because she thinks, you know, she pays attention. Um, She's not educated, which most women wouldn't have been formally educated in the ancient world, though some, some were. Um, But she's, she's paid attention enough to know that some of the things that Paul is saying about this Jesus and resurrection, for example, bodily resurrection, that, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense from her culture's perspective. So she thinks, wait, that can't be right. But yet she's also drawn to him in other ways and to the hope, really it's the hope that his message brings and what that might mean for people's lives and how they interact with each other and how they treat each other and, and what the purpose of life might be. That's what really compels her towards him and she, she keeps an eye on him. Yes, yes. And does she interact? I think she interacts as well with some other Christians. Oh, she does. Yes. So she ends up when she's in the marketplace area, running into a friend of hers who, um, another woman, and this this woman, Irene, and her husband have joined the Jesus community. So that becomes her kind of road in to meet Paul, and she gets to meet Priscilla and Aquila too. I really wanted to showcase Priscilla and Aquila because I think Priscilla is amazing and doesn't get discussed nearly often enough. Oh yeah, and you're writing so. a novel, so why not? Bring, <laughs> I, know. I mean, we know they were all there at the same <laughs> yes, time. So exactly, put all the yep. good stuff in there. So so she gets to inter- interact with all of them, though primarily it becomes a pathway through the women, which we think would have been much more typical especially for women of her kind of class and station. You know, she she runs into her friend in the marketplace and then she gets to meet Priscilla and then does have some interaction with Paul and Aquila as well. And she gets to attend or participate in really one of their weekly gatherings. And that's really impactful for her because of the ways in which people are treated and how they share things like food. People who are slaves and people who are on the wealthier end, you know, are sharing the same food and serving each other. And she finds that. Yeah, talk a little bit about why that would be so surprising to her. Because, yeah, mm-hmm. I was just um, thinking about that as I was rereading uh, the book, how you really, you make a strong point about that, that mm-hmm. slaves are being, ser- they're, they're seated and their owners are serving them. Yeah. Yes, yes. that, And of course, I hope that my readers don't think that I'm arguing that that happened in every Christian situation, you know, every single time, because I'm sure there was some inconsistency. But I... I really, I mean, Paul's there still. So I really think that if Paul was still in that community participating, that and that he would have such influence. You know, if people are in that Jesus community, they've bought into who Jesus is and what this is about. And so to see masters serving slaves or even sitting at the same table with slaves and sharing the same food would have been so uncommon, we think. I tell my students that it's like a high school cafeteria in the ancient world times 10, where like everyone knows where everyone sits and you don't just sit anywhere, or at least you didn't when I was in high school, because that's inappropriate and weird. You have the nerd table, yes, the cool kids table. Exactly, the athletes, you know, Mm -hmm. I sat with the band nerds, which we were proud of that label, but Mm -hmm. so... 
the ancient world in the ancient world eating was that kind had that kind of setup where it was highly stratified and everybody knew where everyone else ranked and where they belonged and where they fit and i wanted to show how the jesus community at least in its sort of best moments with paul there how they could explode that whole system and say no like we're going to eat as brothers and sisters in christ and brothers and sisters usually share the same table yeah wow and I, I know also you kind of take on the reality of sorcery mm-hmm. in Ephesus and how that would have that message would have impacted Anthea, especially uh, as she's pregnant and uh, going to be delivering. Talk a little bit yes. about that. Well, Ephesus is famous for several centuries, at least in the ancient world, you know, right around the time of Paul and Jesus and then before and after as well for being a kind of magical center. Um, And at least sometimes that gets connected to Artemis, who is this patron goddess of the city. So the the idea that a city could have basically a special god or goddess who protected them and took care of them, but also who wanted their their attention, their energy, their devotion, their sacrifices, their rituals. So it was a, a shared relationship in that way. That was very common. There were many other gods and goddesses in Ephesus who were worshipped as well, but we know that Artemis is at least one of the goddesses in the ancient world whom women prayed to and sacrificed to as a way to attempt to get protection during pregnancy and childbirth. So we have prayers in the ancient world where women are praying for those things. They're praying to Artemis. These prayers got written down. That's how we have access to them. They're praying to Artemis and asking her to protect them Mm. because they knew how dangerous it was. And... And I tried to show aspects of that in the book where my main character reflects on when she and this friend of hers had gone to ask for, for protection from Artemis. And then that's one of the reasons why she you know, is sad and surprised that her friend dies in childbirth because they petitioned Artemis for protection. But then she thinks, oh no, maybe Artemis is angry with us. Because of course, so often in the ancient world that gods were what we would call capricious. I mean, you didn't know if you'd made them happy. You weren't quite sure exactly what they wanted from you and you did your best to give them what they wanted. Um, so the danger of that and the fear and worry that came with that, I tried to show that too, as Artemis is interacting with basically these spiritual forces. And then in another place in the book, I retold parts of the story from the book of Acts where even um, cl- clothing that had touched Paul is used to heal people. And I did that in a way that that showed that the people that my main character, Anthea, is around, you know, of course their first impulse is to go to one of the other gods, to go to Artemis or Asclepius or some somebody to help, you know, the various deities, including demons. So, you know, sometimes they call them that. Like maybe we could use their spiritual power to help us. But then it, it ends up being this cloth that had touched Paul that heals this little boy who has a high fever. And the whole group, not even just my main character, but the whole group that she's with is just so taken aback by that because it surprised them so much that the power of Jesus could be greater than these other spiritual beings that they that they worshipped. Yes, and greater for good. Yes. You know, as, mm-hmm. I, as I read through it, and as we mentioned at the, uh, at the beginning of the podcast, you're... Um, you do a a really good job of showing the darkness and the violence that was a part of everyday everyday life. Uh, it wasn't just that life was hard, but that there was violence done um, by 
some onto others by men uh, onto women. What we think of as, um, and what we rightly label as domestic violence now was accepted practice at this time. Um, and then like uh, the just the not knowing, that's what I mean by the darkness. You know, you don't know uh, if Artemis is mad or not, right? Mm-hmm. Or you, you don't yes. you don't know am, am I good? And and actually you don't know if you're loved. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you see this God in in the form of Jesus, the crucified resurrected one, who will give you new life. I mean it's a powerful you can see, it, to me it it, it mm-hmm. brought home to me anew when we talk about the power of the gospel, you allow us to see that power through the eyes of an average woman at at this time. Was was there something as you were writing it that impacted you? Because uh, because you kind of know all this stuff as mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know as an academic, but now as you're writing it in a story form. Was there a moment where you went, wow, that's right? <laughs> well, oh, many moments. I cried sometimes, actually, in writing some of the scenes. I cried during some of the pregnancy and childbirth-related scenes, partly because, honestly, sometimes I cry when I think about my own, especially that first labor and delivery. That was so traumatic for me that I don't actually really like to talk about it very much. And so writing some of that into the book and glimpsing through my main character's eyes, through Anthea's eyes, the hope that she starts to envision when, you know, these women in the Jesus community, in this church, they tell her that Jesus could protect her and save her baby. And she thinks, you know, could that be? And they pray for her, and she's so touched by that. I mean, that that was a, a powerful moment for me, I would say. Um, the episode that I already talked about as well, where the little boy gets healed. I mean, I'm a mom, so maybe these mom moments are the really powerful ones for me. But when that little boy gets healed, I cried writing that because I thought, you know, as a parent, to to worry about a child, a sick child, and then to have them be completely restored would be so powerful. I mean, my kids haven't ever been that sick where I worried, where I feared for their life. Um and then I would say her, also her interactions with the women in this church, in this Jesus community, the way that they treated her and welcomed her and answered her questions, they gave her a safe space for to ask questions and to wonder about things, and they didn't treat her like she was stupid. And I mean, that's what I think the Jesus community even today is supposed to be like, is to, to welcome people in like that and to to take their questions seriously and to give them space to process. And, and she felt so loved and known by that. So those were some of the moments, at least. Well, Holly, you were already starting to touch on this a little bit. In your book, we get this glimpse of how these early Christians, the members of the Jesus community, would have engaged with people living in the world of Greco-Roman culture. And I'm just wondering, uh, do you have any insights that came out as you wrote this story uh, for those of us as Christians living in the 21st century mm-hmm. that we can learn from these first Christians about what it means to engage with culture as followers of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Oh, I have much to say on this, but at least a few of the things that I can lead with. I mean, yes, I they in my book, the Christians, they lead with hope. So when she first listens to Paul talking about Jesus, you know, outside this lecture hall. She's so intrigued because he's talking about how Jesus is was raised from the dead, 
and what that means for people who follow him, that, that they'll be raised to new bodily life because that Jesus is the true God of the world and that God cares about things being restored and that God wants things to be good and whole. I mean, she's so compelled by that because it's the beauty of the vision is just, you know, it captures her. So I think sometimes the Christian church today leads with, well, not hope, (laughs) you know, leads with critique and all the things that are wrong. And I think there's a place for all of that. I do. And I think that, well, holiness, for example, sanctification is often actually underutilized in Christian circles. But if we lead with that, that's not a very compelling message for the world to hear. So what I say to my students always in classes is, you know, who, who wants to be a part of God's restoration project for the world? Because God's restoring the world. Who wants to be a part of that? Come on, let's go. Let's go, guys. Come with me. And then we run. We run like in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, where they're running. <laughs> we run in class. Anyway, I'm kind of a cheesy professor. So that's one of the things I would say. And the, what I also mentioned with the women, you know, welcoming her in and giving her space to ask questions and to feel included and to see what's happening without having to worry about looking stupid, even though sometimes she still does. Like, I, I wish we had, we were better as the church at large at giving people those kinds of spaces. And I'm sure that's happening all over the place in all kinds of ways. I guess what I'm saying is I wish the church was known for, for doing that. And... I hope in my lifetime to see more and more of that kind of thing happening. Uh, The ways in which these early followers of Jesus take care of each other and share resources across what we would call socioeconomic lines, you know, across class, across status, is so compelling to Anthea too because she's on that the kind of the bottom part of the population. I wanted to write my woman as a free woman. In other words, I didn't want her to be a slave, and there were a lot of slaves in the Mediterranean world at this time. Um, I wanted her to be free, but I didn't want her to be elite, because so much of what's been written about women in the ancient world is really about elite women, and most of our sources talk about elite women, so... So in some ways, you know, it's kind of the reality of what we have to work with, though with, with those sources and using some historical imagination, and using actually books like yours, Lynn, you're... Uh, Women in the World of the Earliest Christians was a key source for me in preparing to write my novel. Thank you. And so I was really compelled by the way that you read again, you you called it reading against some of the text to kind of, you know, envision what life could have been like for more women. I I wanted my woman to be on that lower end where she's free, but she's part of that huge majority in the ancient world who's working dawn to dusk just to get something to eat that day. And, And she has to participate in that with her family. It's not like she can just kind of lounge around or even just, you know, take care of kids. And I wish I could put that in air quotes on this podcast. But um, it's, you know, she she has to help so much with everything because the whole family, the whole group that she's part of is working to survive. And she's pregnant and she still might not get something to eat that day. So the way, the ways in which this early Jesus community shares things like food, because that's what, families do, healthy families anyway, that's what kin groups do. She finds that so compelling. And I think that's that's a really practical thing that any Christian anywhere can participate in, no matter what kind of context you're in, is you can share resources. You can treat people, especially believers, like family. And people notice that. People, again, that's leading with hope. People find that kind of vision compelling. So those are some of the things, at least, I think we can learn from the early church. 
Yeah. Thanks so much, Holly. Well, uh, listeners, as you're listening to Holly tell you a little bit about this amazing novel that she wrote, and you feel compelled to learn a little bit more about what it would have been like to live a week in the life of a Greco-Roman woman, we just really want to encourage you to go and check out her book. Um, Lynn, do you have any closing insights for our listeners today? We've just been so happy to have Holly here on the podcast with us. We absolutely have. And uh, I just want to echo Serene's recommendation for this book. It, it's a great read. It's a, it's a hopeful read. Uh, it really is. Amidst the reality of darkness, um, your perspective on the Christian hope shines a light uh, through it all. And I think uh, our listeners will also, I think reading the biblical text uh, will have uh, a more of a texture to it now, because you'll be able to picture, these are how the people who were in Paul's communities, this is, this is what they faced. This is what their families faced. This is, this is who they preach the gospel to. Uh, and it, it just, it uh, makes it come alive. So thank you, Holly, for doing this great work for the church and writing this story and writing this story about a woman, uh, a woman going through things that women, uh, from the dawn of time have, have done. And, um, and you've done it with, um, with the hope of the gospel underpinning it. So thank you. And thanks for stopping by the alabaster jar for a conversation. (laughs) Thanks for having me. So fun. Great. Well, thanks for joining us for another week of the Alabaster Jar, where we have conversations about issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We hope that you'll join us right back here next week for another amazing conversation. Mm-hmm.